Dear Father, thank you so much for this church community that you've blessed us with here at Chorus. Um, thank you for the ways that you've worked through Aaron this week as he prepares um, to preach today. Um, I pray that you would speak through him, and I pray that you would open our hearts to hear and understand your word that you have for us today, um, that you would help us be able to see our sin um, and where we are seeking things other than you. God, thank you again. Um, and I pray that you'll just speak through Aaron today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. The new year, it's right around the corner. 2023 is coming, whether you're ready or not. And as we get closer to that date, January 1st, no doubt there are a lot of churches and businesses and other institutions that uh, are getting ready to roll out their New Year vision strategy. They'll say things like, as we roll into 2023, we want our organization to focus on X. We want our goals to be blank. These things, they're going to be unique to every organization depending on their own mission and purpose. Now, this may be surprising, but just a few years ago, almost every single institution had the same plan rolling into the new year. In December 2019, leaders prepped their people. They said, heading into this new year, we want to have 2020 vision. So every pastor, every principal, every company president, they rehearsed that same pitch. We've got a 2020 vision for the year 2020. Yeah, nailed it. So catchy and original. And then, you know, we all know what happened after that. But what exactly is 2020 vision anyway? Most of us probably assume that that is perfect vision, right? Actually, it's just the prescription of standard or normal vision. It's the clarity with which a regularly healthy eye can see from 20 feet away. That means if I held up the eye chart and asked you know, my brother Michael to read it from his spot in the pew, he should be able to read it clearly because part of my sermon prep this week was coming in here with a measuring tape and finding out which pew was 20 feet away from me. <laughs> Maybe you don't have 20-20 vision though. Uh, maybe you're like me, and without your contact lenses, you have 2,500 vision. Yeah, that means that without any correction, the way you see things 500 feet away is the way I see them at 20 feet away. Just for some context, if you've ever been to a Mizzou football game, that would be like me holding up the eye chart in the south end zone tunnel where the players run out, and then asking Michael to read it while he was standing at the Don Ferro statue in front of the north gate entrance to the stadium. Yeah, almost impossible. And, you know, not to pile on, I'm not trying to throw myself a pity party or anything, but I also have seasonal allergies in the springtime. They're not as bad as they were when I was a kid, but, you know, my eyes, they get a little puffy, a little uh, red and swollen. Makes it hard to wear contacts sometimes. So I had to get a pair of glasses as a backup for those days. But I didn't always do that because I used to think I looked super dorky when I was wearing glasses. So when allergy season rolled around, what I decided to do was just wear 
one contact in my eye at a time, and as long as I could stand it. Yeah. So that's right. In one eye, I would be seeing the world 2020, and in the other eye, 2500. One half of the world clear, the other half a blurry mess. Then as the day went on, the, my contact lens would become unbearable to wear, and so I'd take it out, and I'd put the other one in the other eye. Because, you know, somehow I thought that making these faces was less dorky than just wearing a pair of glasses. I don't know what to tell you. But church, this morning in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to warn us about the dangers of having a bad eye and not seeing clearly. We need healthy eyes to see God's kingdom clearly. Now, there's a lot to unpack here in these short two verses. There's some confusing statements. Your eye is lamp, light and darkness inside you. Your light being super-duper darkness. I was trying to think uh, Pastor Kevin just enjoys giving me these weird passages. Let's just jump into it, though, right into the context and kind of the central claim at play. To understand our verses, we're going to need to look at where we are in Jesus' sermon. The preceding verses we looked at last week include that classic line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the following verses, which Darren will walk us through next week, conclude with, you cannot serve God and money. Pretty sure I've seen VeggieTales cartoons with both of those statements as the main theme. But for some reason, I've never sat through a Sunday school lesson on how the eye is a lamp. When we look at the surrounding passages, they help us know just what ballpark we're even in when we approach these. Jesus is teaching his people about how we view our possessions and how that relates to how we follow him. So there's our overall context and our first clue. Next, now we have to unwrap that metaphor, or at least what we presume is a metaphor. The eye is one of the most complex parts of the human body. The reigning theory of how vision worked around Jesus' day was called the extra mission view. Extra mission. It was a view held by pagan philosophers before Jesus, like Plato, and Christian theologians after Jesus, like Augustine. This theory stated that an internal light from within you shone through your eyes onto objects which is what allowed you to see things. Think about it. A lamp is not a light, but it's the thing in which the light sits. Your bedside table, the lamp is not what emits light, but it's the light bulb that you've screwed into it. Similarly, it's not the eye that is the lamp or the source of light, but rather a lampshade or a window of sorts that allows whatever light is in you to shine through. I think it's pretty clear through Jesus' words here that this is the kind of view that he's referencing. And now, this is a good reminder for us that although the Bible is certainly written for us, it is, in fact, written by ancient people to other ancient people. It's not a modern biology textbook. Certainly, Jesus, the divine creator, he knows better than anyone in the year 22, in the year 2022, how the human eye works. At the same time, the Sermon on the Mount is not a TED Talk. 
his audience, and Matthew, the one who wrote this sermon down for us, they didn't have any concepts of rods and cones and lenses and corneas and optic nerves and all that good stuff. But rather, Jesus, the good physician, he's going to use the prevailing concepts of his day to do some spiritual optometry on us. Jesus preaches, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So given what we know about the view Jesus is working with, allow me to paraphrase those verses just a little bit to help it make some more sense to us. It'd be something like this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is good, that means your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, that means your whole body is full of darkness. That said, if the light inside you is actually darkness, then it must be really dark in there. Now, Another quick aside, if I may. In this passage and throughout the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament, uh, we see Jesus and his apostles interact with uh, so many different folks uh, who suffer from forms of chronic illness and physical disability. Uh, This is something that sometimes can be a stumbling block or an area that requires sensitivity. You know, at Chorus, we believe in and we value genuine gospel diversity We want our church to be a church for all generations, for all races and ethnicities, and for people of any ability. That last one can be difficult, just based on factors out of our control sometimes, budget, existing facilities, things like that. But it is something where we want to include, we want to be able to accommodate in all the ways that we're able. So we read verses like this, and it may get us thinking something that we're not supposed to. We may think, wow, Jesus is saying that blind or visually impaired people are extra sinful, filled with darkness? Not so fast. Remember, first of all, again, they're working with that ancient understanding of vision. And even as Jesus uses this illustration here, he'll actually work to subvert that line of thinking elsewhere in the Gospels. In John chapter 9, we read about his encounter with a blind man, his disciples, and Jesus. It says, and he passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, this guy isn't more sinful than anyone else. The reason he's blind is so that God can display his glory and his grace for everyone to see right here, right now. So even though Jesus is kind of riffing off this cultural assumption here in his sermon, he's not imbibing that view of folks with disabilities. In fact, as we continue to look at this teaching, he's going to turn the tables on folks who think they're healthy when actually they're not. So let's keep looking at our passage. How great would it have been to hear Jesus preach a sermon? Once a month or so, I get to come up here and bring a teaching from God's word. And every now and then, I feel like I write something kind of clever. 
You know, every now and then I string together four or five words that all start with the same sound. I might say something like, the pagan pantheon was a pack of pernicious poltergeists. And I go home and sit on my couch and I feel pretty good about myself. And when I was in school, I told Caitlin that if I ever started preaching sermons that was like the four S's of sanctimoniousness, that she needed to slap me. (laughs) But to hear a sermon from Jesus, the one who in an instant jumbled up the speech of every builder at the Tower of Babel, and then by his spirit filled his apostles' mouths with all of those languages, that's a master wordsmith. What I'm saying is here we need to understand Jesus' wordplay as well to understand this passage. Is Jesus only saying this, or is he saying more? Jesus is always trying to tell us more. If your eye is good, if your eye is bad, if your eye is healthy, if your eye is unhealthy, those words there, aside from just the physical condition of something, they also were used to convey dispositions of generosity and stinginess. Now the passage should start to make more sense, given its context. We're being taught about how disciples relate to their possessions and how our materialism is confronted by following Jesus. Cars Church, here's why we need to hear this teaching this morning. We live in a world of scarcity, and we've learned to hold on tightly to what belongs to us. We live in a world of scarcity, and we've learned, it's our habit, it's our instinct, to hold on tightly to what's ours. <clears throat> One of my favorite Christmas movies is, um, I hope you guys have seen it, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Jingle All the Way. It's fun. If you haven't seen it, it's the story of a way too busy corporate real estate dad who has procrastinated all season long to get his kid's Christmas present. It's the season's hottest toy, the Turbo Man action figure with the arms and legs that move and the boomerang shooter and his rock and roller jetpack and the realistic voice activator with five different phrases, including, it's turbo time. Accessories sold separately, batteries not included. So Mr. Universe goes out into the mall two days before Christmas, and of course, he's laughed out of every store. They're out of stock. Everyone's out of stock. He continues to get closer and closer to this toy. He also continues to hurt the people around him. A poor single dad, a bunch of old ladies, kids in the mall, even the family that he's trying to get this present for. He has to wrestle with the reality of scarcity in our world. Also his own, you know, laziness and forgetfulness. And now I'm sure it stinks to not be able to get the toy that your kid wants. But that's not even really the scarcity that most of us deal with. We live in a world of inflation and rising interest rates. We live in a monopolized world that's overtaxed and overpatented. We live in a world where too many corporate businesses are able to collude their way to the top. It's also a world where most of our household budgets have really had to tighten as of late. So as hard as it is, For as many of us here, Jesus' audience had it far worse. Most of the people we encounter in the New Testament, they lived hand to mouth, if they were lucky. And every sick and disabled person who Jesus healed, they only made it to that day based on the generosity of others in their life. 
And still, Jesus, seated on top of this mountain, he speaks into and he confronts the eye that views our scarce world with a stingy perspective. And that's not to say Jesus didn't acknowledge scarcity. After all, he lived it along with his contemporaries. And Jesus also didn't condemn those who owned property or had wealth. After all, Luke's gospel tells us that it was Jesus' wealthy women disciples who supported him financially. But it's our attitude towards and our perspective of our possessions in this world that he confronts. Let's back it up to the very beginning. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, God looks out into the world that he's made and he declares that it is very good. In Genesis 2, he plants a garden full of vegetation and life. He puts the humans in the garden. He tells the man, hey, y'all can eat from every tree, every plant in this garden except for one. In Genesis 3, then we read the tragic tale of the humans eating from the one tree they weren't supposed to. So often we think to ourselves, how could you? You had every other tree to eat from. You had everything. But you couldn't resist that one thing. And we like to think that we're different, that we're more intelligent, that we're more advanced, that we're more moral. But we're not that different. Sometimes it's the spouse who has the perfect picture marriage, but they still decide that they want to have an affair. Maybe it's the student who already has straight A's, but they, need to play, they think they need to plagiarize and cheat to stay on top. Maybe it's the athlete who already is at the top of their game, yet decides they need to start taking performance-enhancing drugs. Maybe it's the business owner who's already well-off themselves, yet decides to cut their employees' compensation or working conditions so they can save a few extra dollars. A ministry mentor of mine used to say all the time, if you ask a greedy person how much is enough, you know what they'll say? Just one more. One more hit. One more relationship. One more dollar. We're not that different from those first humans. So often we find ourselves in places of abundance, and we think to ourselves, I still need more. We reach for that fruit. God's given us every other tree, but do we trust him to take care of us tomorrow in the ways that he's taking care of us today? We see manna on the ground, and we think, even though God's been gracious every day before, I might need to look out for myself tomorrow. God looks over his world that he's made. He says, it's very good. We look into that same world with our blurred vision, and we say, yeah, but I'm just not sure it's good enough. Church, Jesus lived in a world of absolute poverty and strangling scarcity. Yet he had the heart and the eyes of his father. He also had the audacity to preach these things to the people he did. He said, blessed are the poor, because he preached his sermon to them. To the poor, Jesus said, you are blessed because God's kingdom is yours. To the poor and hungry, he said, you are blessed because you will be filled. To the poor, he said, when someone takes your coat, give them your shirt too. To the poor, he said, if someone begs from you, lend and don't expect it back. 
To the poor, he said, when you give to those in need. Can you imagine hearing those proclamations? How much more for so many of us who have what we need for today, tomorrow, next week, already squared away? Why does Jesus tell us right after that to pray like this, give us this day our daily bread? It's because our world is in need of bread. Don't just give me my daily bread, but give us our daily bread. Y'all, God blesses us so that we can bless others. God blesses us so that we can bless others. So how should we look at our bread? Most of the time we, we think, looking through our bad eyes, just bread? I deserve more. But Jesus looks at the bread with kingdom vision. He blesses the bread, thanks his father for what he's been given. Not much, just five loaves. But Jesus, the loaf multiplier, blesses the crowd of 5,000. Church, God always blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. There's this really obscure Christmas song that I love. It's called Good King Wenceslas. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe not, though, because the song rarely comes on the radio. And even when it does, it's pretty rare that you're able to understand what's going on in the song and make sense of the story. But it's a poem about a bohemian king who lived kind of near the beginning of the 10th century, the 900s. It's the day after Christmas. He's standing out on the balcony of his castle. He sees a peasant out in the woods standing in the cold snow. And he calls over his servant. He says, Hither, page boy, stand by me. If you know this, tell me. Yonder peasant, who is he? Where and what his dwelling? This peasant lives out on the edge of the forest. He's out gathering fuel to make a fire to keep his family warm and full of dinner. But the king's not satisfied with that state of affairs. He says to his page boy, Bring me food and bring me wine. Bring me pine logs hither. You and I shall see him dine. When we bear them thither, take him some logs. As they venture out into the snow, the page boy, he doesn't know how much longer he can go. It's too cold outside. So the generous king tells him, Mark my footsteps, thy good page. Tread thou in them boldly. You will find the winter's rage will freeze thy blood less coldly. As it turns out, heat was in the very sod which the saint had dinted. Walking through the snow, the king says, walk in my footsteps. You'll be able to make it. They make it to the peasant through the cold to share a meal with the poor man in his home with his family. The poem ends with a line of instruction from the poet to us. Therefore, Christian men be sure, rank or wealth possessing, you who now will bless the poor shall yourself find blessing. Catch this though. What's the blessing? This isn't a prosperity gospel hymn where the moral of the story is give to the poor so God will give you more in return. That's not biblical. But the blessing we see in the poem is this. The most difficult moment in this act of generosity, God blessed them with heat in their feet. Good King Wenceslas looked out, 
from his balcony with a good, healthy, generous, kingdom-oriented eye. And the blessing was the provision he needed to fulfill this act of generosity. The blessing was being able to follow through with God's command. Chorus. What's next in this passage, these if-then statements that Jesus give us here, are one of a handful of scary verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says here, if your eye is healthy, then your body is full of light. And if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Jesus again gives us a test to show us who we are. It's like a few weeks ago when Bobby preached on, if you don't forgive others, my Father will not forgive you. And in a few weeks, we'll see Jesus teach the way you judge others is how you will be judged. Now, yes, and amen, we are only saved by God's grace, not through our forgiving, not through our judging, but Jesus gives us another litmus test. He says, the health of your eye demonstrates the health of your soul. If we don't forgive the way Jesus forgave, if we don't judge the way Jesus judges, and if we're not radically generous like Jesus, then it's possible, actually it's probable, that we have not truly experienced the forgiveness and grace and generosity of Jesus. And Jesus says, if your soul is dark, yeesh, it is dark in there. When we see the world like good King Jesus saw it, generosity flows out of us. You knew I was going to come back to that. Good King Wenceslas stepped down from his cozy castle, yet Jesus, the far better king, stepped down from his throne in heaven. He didn't just carry logs for firewood into the forest, but he carried his own wooden crossbeam outside the city. He didn't have a loyal page boy at his side because all his friends deserted him. And he didn't just go out into the rough, wild world for one person, though he certainly would have. He gave his life as a ransom for many so that he could be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And then on that last day, when Jesus returns to set our world right, we won't need the dim light that's within us to shine out into the world to see. We won't even need the sun anymore because in God's new creation, there is no need for a sun or a moon to shine for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb, Jesus. Yes and amen forever to the glory of our better king and our brighter light. Let's pray. Dear Father, we honor you We bless you this morning. Would you make your name holy in our church? Let us see Jesus clearly. Let us see this world through kingdom eyes so that we can live rightly in our world. Father, make us generous like Jesus, seeing your world through his eyes. Father, as we continue to worship this morning, would you give us unity around your table, both with one another and with you? Whether we have status or wealth, God, we're thankful for the blessings you've blessed us with, and none of those is greater than Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.